Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And Tom, there's one question I have for you. Yes? Is this show... In the words of David Crosby, going to stir my brains with a spoon, man. (laughs) I never thought anybody would say that to me in life, but there it was. He did that to you. Yeah, in my interview, he was talking about uh, Tracy Chapman. Right. He said, she she stirred my brains with a spoon, man. (laughs) All right, Christopher. So let's talk about this week's show. And Mm -hmm. it was about a year ago, I think. Actually, I know exactly when it was. Episode 5, that we ran your interview with Pete Townsend. And it was a great interview. And Pete was a really interesting person because there's Mm -hmm. moments in that interview where he's completely like curmudgeon. It was an unusual interview. And so this interview is a little bit different and it's... um it kind of reveals a different side of him. And we also have an interview with Roger Daltrey. And mm, these are great. completely separate, but they are both excellent. And I can't wait to play them for you and our audience. Back-to-back is perfect, Tom. Yeah. So what else we got today, Tom? Well, Christopher, we have some excellent audio from Tom Jones, of all people, from I think about the early 70s, talking about his career and some of his biggest hits. And you and I will have a bit of an argument about some of his music later. Um, also, Late 70s, The Commodores, some really good stuff about them, especially talking about the hits Three Times a Lady and Easy. Lots of great stuff on the way. That's Who Are You by The Who, and here's Christopher talking about Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend is an interviewer's dream. He's erudite, thoughtful, strongly opinionated, and not at all hesitant to tell you what's on his mind. And in many ways, it feels like he's formulating those thoughts in the moment. Okay, now, even if that's a trick of a wily subject, it uh-huh. still makes for great interviews, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, in this one, Tom, he covers a lot of ground. And if you've ever been a fan of The Who, this one's for you. For sure. This is an excellent piece. Let's start with Pete talking about the earliest days of the band. The band began in about 1959-60 at school with John Whistle and myself playing together initially. We played uh, Dixieland jazz, that kind of stuff, which was popular at the time. Uh, And in England, it was considered to be slightly more real than the kind of pop music that was around at the time, which was a bit vacuous, the kind of Paul Anker kind of stuff. Then we found, or Roger had a group, Roger Daltrey, he was at the same school, and we got a little bit older, and I suppose when I was about 14 or 15, I joined his group with John, And at that time we were called the Detours and we used to play kind of Dwayne Eddy kind of rock and roll, that kind of thing, guitar stuff and odd Elvis tunes and that kind of thing, copying other people's music. Oh my goodness, 1959, I had no idea. And the music that they were playing was less vacuous than Paul Anka, he says. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. There was a distinct turning point for The Who that he recalls. I think what was the turning point for us, like for a lot of bands... Uh, we kept going, we kept playing pubs and stuff like that and clubs and used to make some, you know, good money. Bands used to actually make money in those days. And what was the turning point was the Beatles came along. I think that was in 63, late 63. And uh, I was at art school at the time, about about 16 or 17. And uh, just really turned everybody's heads around. It gave, it, it made everybody in Britain realise that that... British rock and roll meant something and that had something and we stopped looking to the States all the time. Uh, Although, of course, we were taking uh, 
our roots from American music, from black American music and from uh, Elvis and stuff like that. Uh, but mainly, like the Beatles, we became influenced by Tamla Motown and R&B. And I think we, uh, we reorganised the band into that kind of frame of music with Roger just singing, me taking over lead guitar, uh, and we found Keith Moon to play drums. I think about a year, a year after the Beatles uh, came on the scene, we managed to get a recording contract. Uh, we lost one recording contract. It's quite an interesting story. Uh, we lost one recording contract. We did an audition with, with the company that were looking after the Beatles. I think it was EMI. And uh, we lost it because we weren't writing our own stuff. They said they, they were looking for bands that wrote their own material. So I decided to have a bash at it. Okay, so he says something there that's really interesting to me, that the Beatles made others, other Brits, feel proud of being British and empowered to not only rely on American music. That's really something. that I've never quite heard that take. So the explosion that happened because of the Beatles was very much kind of a patriotic, oh my God, if these guys from Liverpool can do this, we can do this. Right, but of course, if you scratch the surface ever so slightly, the roots of both bands are in American R&B. Absolutely, and he says that in that clip, but that's an excellent point. The Stones made quite a mark on the early Who. The Beatles were considered to be pretty risque when they first appeared, with dinky haircuts and dinky jackets. Uh, but when the Stones came along, I mean, that was they were the band that that hit me fashion-wise and impact-wise. You know, when I first saw them live, we used to support them quite a lot because they came from a similar area. And the Stones really affected me very, very deeply. Their wildness on the stage, the fact that they didn't wear uniforms, uh, this kind of thing was very just outrageous, you know, and Jagger's stage performance and Keith Richards' stage performance, just very, very wild and unkempt. And uh, they were the first, I think the closest to a sort of a a latter-day punk Mm -hmm. image. Wild and unkempt, almost like the original punks. I like that. (laughs) I like that. Well, it's reminiscent of the Bill Wyman interview where he talks about them showing up, just, you know, having gotten off the bus and going right up on stage, like no uniforms, no outfits, and horrors smoking (laughs) and chewing gum (laughs) on stage. Yeah. Peter has a fascinating theory on the life and death of punk. Why punk went into such a rapid demise or never ever got going was precisely because... They had no roots. Uh, Bands like The Who and The Stones, as I've said before, for fear of repeating myself, I mean, we were based... We had very strong roots in in R&B, but they were wider than that, too. I mean, when I was 17, I used to listen to and try to bring out in my music jazz. I used to listen to Coltrane, Charlie Parker, early Herbie Hancock, people like that. Uh, and so we had a very strong... It's like building a mountain and then taking off. Mm-hmm. Whereas what the uh, punks wanted to do is they wanted to clear everything out of the way. They felt that the establishment, the rock establishment, was too powerful, too gross, that the people that controlled it were too old, too out of touch, that the superstars like The Who and The Stones and Yes, and Genesis, and people like this, were far too too technocratic. So these are excellent observations. Even if I don't agree with them all, I think that The Clash would be a notable exception here. They were punk, 
but they covered some great old songs, and I think they even, if not improved upon them, they re-energized them. And I think those were loyal kind of cover versions of those songs because they respected the originals. Well, I'm a huge Clash fan, so yeah. you'll get no argument from me on that one. <laughs> All right. I think for me, the most interesting point that he made was that punk was rootless music. Right. Mm-hmm. And yes, he's got an opinion on Casey and the Sunshine Band and others. When it started, that Philadelphia stuff, that Casey and the Sunshine Band stuff, right, started pouring out of Philadelphia and then it started to spread. It was factory-produced music. That's the thing about it. It was well done and everything, but it's got no soul. Uh, like ABBA, wonderful, wonderful records, but heart of glass, really, I think. Uh, that stuff is factory-made. And I think that's what hard rock people really object to, is the fact that it's empty, mm-hmm. shallow stuff. And it's produced like uh, breakfast cereal. And it's good, a lot of it, and it's bad, a lot of it, because that's the way everything is mm-hmm. in life. Oh, dear, when rock stars attack. Very good, the <laughs> Pete Townsend edition. Factory music, plastic, ABBA, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Yeah. Casey, we played him last week. I hope he wasn't listening to that. No, no one is safe, Tom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Touring has, of necessity, changed for the band by the time of this interview. I don't want to stop touring altogether, but there are a lot of reasons why... I want to keep it short. One is the physical thing, the fact that I'm worried about my health, mainly hearing, because the Who are a little bit quieter now. Funnily enough, as as the lineup of the band's got a bit bigger, you know, we've complemented the band or mm. implemented, or I don't know what you call it. We've got some brass, but most important, we've got a keyboard player, Rabbit, playing with us now. And that helps us to keep the level on the stage down a bit. Mm-hmm. The more instruments you get, the quieter you can actually play, funnily enough. And yet here they are, more than 40 years after this interview, still on tour. Amazing. Mm -hmm. He talks about how the loss of Keith Moon affected the others. We suddenly realised that, well, in losing Keith, it's made us realise how much we value one another. Uh, And, of course, the longer we, we live and work together, the more important we become to one another. John Entwistle begins to mature as a songwriter. I think in a way, you know, I, I get tagged occasionally as the leader or the spokesman or whatever. I mean, because over the years I've done the bulk of the interviews and stuff like that. Basically, I think it's basically because I've done the bulk of the writing. But John has taken over a lot more of the writing. John writes generally uh, in the past, has like written one or two tracks on the album. But we on each album, but we broke that tradition on Who Are You? Mm-hmm. And he wrote three songs. And one of one of the songs that he wrote was one of the finest tracks on the album, Trick of the Light, mm-hmm. really great heavy rock track. Uh, so we're hoping that he's going to be able to write a lot more. Wow, it's hard to believe that John Entwistle has been gone for 17 years now, and he was only 57 when he passed away. To me, that sounds younger and younger. Yeah. Here's how Townsend made his very early demos. We've always worked roughly the same way. Uh, My mentor and the early manager of the group, Kit Lambert, who used to be so invaluable to me when I was learning to write, uh, bought me a tape recording system back in 64 and encouraged me to put my thoughts onto tape 
and to produce demo tapes, uh, you know, where I play three or four instruments in the Todd Rundgren tradition. And I've been doing that throughout those years. John works in exactly the same way when he writes a song. So we go in with a batch of demos, and now, like so many other musicians, I've got a home studio, and I've had a home studio for a long time with, you know, really quite sophisticated stuff. So when I do a demo tape, if the Who reject it, uh, or if it doesn't f suit the Who, uh, I've actually got a tape there which is, in some cases, good enough to be issued as a master if I ever wanted to put it out myself. Oh, and there are the roots of his solo work right there. If the band doesn't like the demos, they go into a vault and he releases it on his own. Wow. He talks about choosing the material for his first solo record. The first solo album, per se, that I made was a thing called uh, Who Came First? which wasn't really a solo album at all. It was a collection of ideas and songs in demo form that had been released on limited edition records through the Maya Barber organisation. And it didn't sell very much, but it, it made a lot of money for the charity involved. And in fact, the way that I would define a solo album would be an album on which I get first choice of the material. And so in this particular case, I've actually used two tracks which I wrote for The Who. Uh, one is a track called Tough Boys, and the other is a track called... What was the other one I wrote? Gonna Get Ya. And uh, when I went into the studio, I thought, screw it, I'm going to use them. You know, I'm going to get first cut at my own material for this. And uh, so that's... It really is my first solo thing. I mean, the thing I did with Ronnie Lane, the Rough Mix album... Uh, was as close as I've ever come to a solo mm -hmm. album, but that was Who Rejects. All that material had been rejected by the band. You know, Rough Boys is a very interesting song. Some people have mm. seen it as a coming out for Pete, and at first he seemed to accept that and promote that idea that he was coming out, but at times he's rejected that. And at the time, I remember hearing Alice Cooper saying he loved the sexual ambiguity of that song, and he described Pete as a, quote, amazing mystery. Well, Alice is the perfect one to comment. <laughs> For sure. But I love that song. Yeah, to me, that's really one of the song. greatest should have been a Who song songs. Yeah. But it sounds great on the solo album, Empty Glass. on the Who route. Sure. The early 80s was a transitional time for the Who. They'd been working for almost 20 years and had become one of the faces of a musical establishment that they had resisted themselves in the past. Keith Moon died in 1978 and the band replaced him with Kenny Jones. Jones had been in the faces um, and while he was a stellar musician coming to the Who, he was very different stylistically from Keith Moon. They released two albums with him drumming, 81's Face Dances and 82's It's Hard, and in 82 launched a North American tour that wrapped with a live album recorded in Toronto. They actually ended a lot of tours in Toronto, come to think of it. Like the last tour with Keith Moon... Uh, I think it was 77, 78, and it was a show at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I was there, and I was sitting, I thought they were terrible tickets when I got them, because they were at the back in the greys, and it turned out that I was right above Keith Moon's head. So you were behind the stage? Yeah. 
Oh my God, that must have been wild just to watch him play. It was wild watching the whole band play. It was、mm. just because he just drove that act like、mm-hmm. a like a general at war. It was it was wild seeing it from that perspective. Yeah. Anyway, the following year after this this tour and live album, Townsend quit the band, and it would be twenty four years before the release of Endless Wire. So lead singer Roger Daltrey is open about some of the conflicts they faced. And he has a very different perspective from Pete. Here he talks about how influences work on an artist. The mod movement in England was going going long before Quadrophenia came out.、Um, obviously, I, you can't deny that we must have influenced some of those bands. I mean, like Bob Dylan influenced me, and the Beach Boys influenced me, and the Stones influenced me, and every other band has influenced me because it all does. Because you hear it, and once you've heard it, some the good bits stick in your subconscious, and that, so you're influenced. So we must have influenced something, but nothing important, I don't think. I think no. I think some of the Townsend's lyrics were probably the, some of the best rock and roll lyrics ever written, and they would be timeless, but just by the, the way they are, they are timeless. They probably, in fact, they probably mean more to kids today because kids are much more aware of their situation today than kids of、uh, my generation when. We were actually doing them in the first place. Okay, so these clips are a little bit muddy sounding, but they are so good. He's very humble about the Who's influence, but is obviously acknowledging Pete Townsend's immense talent as a lyricist. Yeah, I love that part of it. He、mm-hmm. was just so open in his admiration for a guy that he's known for decades. Right. You know, the addition of Kenny Jones was a big decision for the band. May I ask if it was a hard adaptation when Kenny came into the band after all those years with Keith? After being a four-man unit for so long and knowing each other's moves, I would think instinctively, was it a, a tough going in the beginning when uh, uh, when uh, your new member came in, Kenny Jones? No, it wasn't. It was quite easy, really, because it was like a a blood transfusion. It was like because、uh, in the last years with Keith, it was really hard work. To be really honest, and it's not I'm not trying to insult his playing or anything, but in the, towards the end, he was really out of shape, and it was hard work. I mean, it really was.、Um, and when Kenny joined, it was. Really like a new lease of life,、um, but I was just so glad to, that the band was actually playing again as a band because the Who's big. I've always said that the Who's bigger than all of us. You know, it doesn't matter who leaves, who joins. It's the feeling and the ideals that are the Who and and our audience. You know, funny, but his comments about Kenny Jones in recent years were far less charitable, and I don't believe that they thought that Kenny was a good fit at all in the group. Well, you know, listening to this. In hindsight, Roger sounds more like a salesman for the band, right? And this idea that oh, it doesn't matter who leaves; it's still the idea of the Who. It's like no, it's not. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> the Who without Pete Townsend or without Roger Daltrey is a tribute band yeah. at best. <laughs> yeah. I、uh, note how Daltrey's feelings about their fans differ. From Pete Townsend's. What keeps the band coming out over and over again? It, it's I find that fascinating. Apart from the fact that I really do love it on stage, I mean, I really that is the, apart from my wife, it's the next best part of my life. You know, I just feel that I, we really care about those people. I mean, it can sound blase and it can sound all kind of pompous and everything else, but I really mean it. We do care about those people, and they kids today seem to be just searching for something, and I. It just at concerts. It just feels like at least there's 
one night in their life where they're all having a good time, you know. Okay, so let's stop the presses for a moment and go <laughs> okay. back to episode five when you right. asked Pete Townsend what they got, as in the members of The Who, got from performing live. Let's replay that clip. Yeah, I, I remember asking him what the band got back from the audience. I felt that it was like the last night's show was like a gift to the audience, and I'm wondering what you get back from the audience in a situation like that. Not very much. <laughs> Seriously, not very much. I and mean, we get their money. And uh, and and we hear we hear a lot of. Uh, I wish we got more back, but Stadium Rock is not very good for the performer. I don't think it's very good really for the for the uh, for the audience either, really. But it's like something that we're stuck with. It's a pity, really. I think. Oh man, <laughs> there you yeah. go, Pete Townsend laying it on the line. He really did. That's really quite a contrast to what Roger Daltrey said there. Mm-hmm. They're both cagey in their own way, and yes. I love these interviews. Yeah. So the big question, and I guess it's still out there, is when to hang it up. Can you see eventually just getting off the road and, and just staying in the studio? Obviously, we have to get off the road someday. I mean, I don't want to ever get up on stage and people say, "Well, look, they're, they're over the hill," or "There has beens," um, and. I think I'm honest enough to admit, when it when it comes to, for the time to admit it, that I've I'm past it, you know. But uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm as I feel as young and as fit as ever. He also talks about why the audience comes to their shows. I really don't care as long as people were there to see us. I don't really give a damn what reason. Once we get them there, we'll deliver. And I think that's one thing you cannot deny about the Who. We always deliver. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I don't care about the reasons why they come. Uh-huh. As long as once we're in there, they'll come back. And they always do come back. Oh, wow. Very punk-sounding Roger Daltrey. And he's very cocky and confident there. Interesting. Well, he was kind of proto-punk, wasn't mm-hmm. he? Certainly Pete was, I yeah. think. Yeah. Toronto is a very important city for the Who. Well, oh, just, they've just been so good to us, thanks a lot. That's all I can say. I mean, because it is amazing that we played here, uh, what was it, ten, we- ten weeks ago. Uh, and then we can come back and, and do a gig like this. It's great. Yeah. And we we were going to end in somewhere I don't know, uh, <laughs> flea bite pencil. I don't know where it was. I mean, some <laughs> godforsaken place down the south of the US. You know. Who came up? And with we the thought, idea well, let's let's just end end on a big one. Yeah. And they offered us Buffalo or Toronto, and so we said Toronto. And they are back on tour starting in May. They have three Canadian shows, June 1st in Toronto, October 21st in Vancouver, and October 23rd in Edmonton, which presently stands as the last date of the tour. Now, no shows announced for Montreal, Ottawa, or Windsor, in case you're listening in one of those cities. Roger talks about Keith Moon's death. When Keith died, they did a program on BBC radio in England of things that we'd said about Keith about four years before. And one of the things I said, which I didn't realise would ever come true, was that Keith Moon was a man who lived a lifetime every day of his life. A whole lifetime in one day. And he was just a, such a restless soul. He would never ever find what he was looking for in this life. And it was the inevitable. It was inevitable that it would happen the way it did. It was a shame it was such a terrible accident. But I could never have seen Keith Moon old. He could never have grown old, old gracefully. I could never have seen Keith Moon unable to play his drums, which would have been a, one of the things that would have happened by getting old. The only thing that really shook us is that we were, were expecting it for 10 years. And yet when it came, it was a surprise. Wow, very sad and touching. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
they still have a mission. Well, the Who are never going to be a disco band. I mean, we're an alternative to disco. We're a rock and roll band. I think on the last album, there were signs of something new germinating, like in Music Must Change, which is almost out and out jazz. Not that we're going to become a jazz band. The new lineup, we've got keyboards, so we've got more, more freedom on stage. We don't try and speak for the kids of today. It, we're still encapsulating the problems of our generation. And I feel if we can go on doing that, encapsulating the feelings of people as they go through their lives and help them through hard times by understanding the hard times, then we're winning. Huh. That's quite the mission statement because they admit that they're not trying to appeal to a younger audience, which a lot of bands try to keep doing. They're trying to appeal to their generation, if you'll pardon the expression. I like how candid this is. Yeah. Because a lot of bands, I think, fool themselves. They'll say, oh, well, you know, there's so many young people in the audience and we've, we're reaching a whole new generation when, in fact, no, you speak most clearly and truthfully to the people that came up when you did. Mm-hmm. In this last clip, Roger Daltrey talks about who he admires. I don't like disco personally, but I, for everyone that likes it, there's one that hates it, which pushes, you know, I think it's all necessary. There's a lot of things I really like that's going on at the moment. There's a lot that went on that I didn't like. A lot of the early punk stuff was so bad, that, and it went on for so long with so much press coverage, people started to, started to almost started to think it was good, some of it. But there's, the good people always come through in the end, people like Costello. The police will be a big band because they are a good band. Um, I don't know about The Clash. They don't impress me because some of the things they say, are, it's not only naive, it's just downright thick. I would like it if people like you know John Lennon came back and did something because I think they're sadly missed. People like that are very sadly missed. There you have it, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend from The Who, more to come on Famous Lost Words. She's a lady. song she's a lady i love that oh that's Tom. <laughs> no 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 that's a that's one of the worst songs well i think ever written okay what do you want to hear and by the way do you know who wrote it uh paul anka paul anka you're right oh <laughs> right up there with having my baby okay what do you want to hear sorry to say it's not unusual okay here it is it's not unusual to be loved by anyone it's not unusual to have fun with anyone but when I see you hanging about with anyone It's not unusual to see me cry I wanna die Great song. Tom Jones from the mid-60s. It's not unusual. Christopher, go ahead. Tom. Sir Thomas John Woodward has had quite a career, starting with a string of hits beginning in 1964. British music manager Gordon Mills saw something that he liked in this young Welsh belter, and changed his name to Tom Jones after the 1963 movie, got him a record deal with Decca, and, talk about full-service management, he wrote his first single, It's Not Unusual. Mm. Burt Bacharach was a fan as well and asked Tom to sing the title song on his new film project, What's New Pussycat? Oh, boy. A 1966 Grammy for Best New Artist followed, and the hits continued, a total of 36 UK top 40s. Wow. I know. In the lean times... He always had Vegas, where he met and became good friends with Elvis, 
Mountains of underwear and hotel room keys greeted every performance. You know, mountains of underwear does not sound sexy to me. I'm just going to tell you. It sounds like no. It sounds like the throwaway bin at the dollar store. <laughs> oh, you sound like you're talking from experience. Okay, well, let's not go there. I didn't. <laughs> oh, boy. In this interview from many years after his initial success, Jones reminisces about how he got his break. Well, it started for me in, in London. Um, well, my manager, my manager now, came down to see me in Wales in um, 1964 uh, in a club in Wales and um, took me to London, wrote It's Not Unusual, which was my first uh, hit. When it first came out, I was um, playing at a club in the north of England and I was staying uh, in a pub, you know, <laughs> and uh, the record just came out and they were playing it on the jukebox in the bar of this pub and uh, these fellas kept um, kept playing it all the time and the landlady of the of the pub said well you know the boy that's singing it is, is sitting right there you know so I was thrilled to bits because they kept playing it on the jukebox all the time in this pub in the north of England and that was the start of it you know oh very cool it's not unusual yeah and by the way yeah the piano player on that session was a young guy by the name of Reg Dwight Elton was the piano player on that song Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. He also recalls how he got hooked up with Burt Bacharach. Well, Burt Bacharach was writing the music for the film, Watch the Pussycat, and um, he heard uh, It's Not Unusual when it was uh, when it was first out. And uh, the B-side of It's Not Unusual, Burt Bacharach wrote, was, it was called To Wait for Love. So he liked the way I did that and asked would I, would I do the, um, you know, the title for the, for the film. So uh, I said, okay, we'll have a listen to it and you know, see what it's like. So that's, you know, that's how we did it. Bird and Hal David had a really interesting way of putting songs together. They were so sophisticated. That stuff that he, you know, that they did with Dionne Warwick and with B.J. Thomas with uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, those were such classy songs. They sound a little bit square in hindsight now, but I think at the time they were considered really smart songwriting, weren't they? It's funny because I, going back and listening to that stuff, I have a whole new appreciation for it. I liked the songs at the time. Yeah. But yeah, when the Beatles came along, you didn't really care that much about raindrops keep falling on my head. Right. But when I listen back now to something like um, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, that is masterful lyric writing. Yes. It's melody-wise. I mean, Burt Bacharach was untouchable in that era. Yeah. Tom Jones always understood what an audience wanted. Well, um, I think, uh, first of all, it must be the voice, because I was selling records before people saw me uh, on stage. But um, I think people want to, to see something on stage, to, uh, not just, you know, listen to a, a singer. I've tried to, uh, to give them something to look at as well as listen to, which, um, you know, some performers don't do. And I think people want to see that. Excellent yeah. stuff. Well, Tom except Jones. for the fact that, that they want it, they don't want she's a lady. Because you know what, Tom? She's all you'd ever want. She's the kind I like to flaunt and take to dinner. <laughs> you know but what? But she though? always knows her place. <laughs> she's got style, she's got grace, she's a wiener. Well, she's all you'd ever want. She's the kind I'd like to flaunt and take to dinner. She always knows her place. She's got style. She's got grace. She's a winner. Unforgivable. Just a hint of sarcasm, and that drives that point home. Well done, Christopher Ward. (laughs) Okay, let's switch it up completely now with this classic from the Commodores. You once 
twice Three times a lady Christopher, when you say you've got an interview with the Commodores, you're going, oh, it's Lionel Richie for sure. I was honestly disappointed when, when it wasn't Lionel Richie, but I got to tell you, first of all, two things. We do have Lionel Richie coming up in the coming weeks, and it's excellent. But it's it's him as a solo artist and him actually well into his solo career. These interview clips are with William King, who I don't know much about, but William King is excellent talking about the band, including Lionel Richie's songwriting in this. Tom, the Commodores were students at Tuskegee University. That's in Alabama, and that's where Lionel Richie's from. Mm -hmm. This goes back to the early 70s, and they were playing frat parties and clubs, and they were made up of members of two different bands, one called the Jays, the other called the Mystics, Mm. neither one of which anyone has heard of, but it doesn't (laughs) matter, because they got together, and some of the key members included Lionel Richie and William King, the subject of today's interview. Now, the band had a bunch of instrumental hits, but they really broke when they released Brick House. House. You know what? I was in a store the other day and heard that. All I, it was like all the employees stopped and started dancing. That yeah. song still is just a classic chunk of funk, and it comes from their fifth album. That was followed by Easy, which was, again, a huge move stylistically to a much mellower sound, one that resonated with a very wide demographic of fans. Now, Easy was a Billboard R&B number one, and it was top five in the top 40 as well. And in the wake of a run of hits, including Three Times a Lady, we're going to hear from William King, who, in addition to being the band's choreographer, (laughs) also played trumpet, guitar, synthesizer, flute, and percussion. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, like most bands, the Commodores did not want to be tied to one musical style. I mean, disco was our, our, our foot out, the door opener for us. And um, so and it says that we play disco very well. But I, I think disco is somewhat like acid rock was. You know, it's just an era that comes in and goes out. So I don't want to be labeled as something that's going to be here for a little while. Uh, that's the reason we write songs such as Easy. So we try to, to bridge all the gaps. So that whether you're 8 or 80, you can enjoy Commodore music. They had an exhaustive approach to choosing songs. Well, Easy was a song that we had a great battle over in the lyrics department. And um, most of the ballads are written by Lionel Richie. And, uh, but the way we write is that we bring in the songs and the group looks at all of the songs. Uh, for instance, on the last album, on the Commodore Commodore album, we had 84 songs to pick 8 tunes from. So we just kind of just sit and we perform each song before we before we pick them. Wow, that's a lot of songs. Eighty four songs they learned. Eighty four. That's crazy. Boy. Wow, that's a, an entire career for some people. Mm-hmm. He talks about when Lionel Richie first brought them the idea for Three Times the Lady. I don't want to sound uh, uppity or whatever, but the truth of the matter is that when Richie first played Three Times the Lady, he, we didn't even let him finish. He played just the hook. The hook is the main part of the song that you sing over and over again that you keep going back to. Such as once, twice, three times a lady, that type of thing. But um, he played the hook, and we told him he didn't have to play anymore. But he didn't, did not even have to have the lyrics there, because we knew that that was a hit tune. That's great. He goes, you're once, twice, three times a lady. And they go, stop right there, just write the rest of it. It's fine. It's going to be a hit. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's on the record. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, you know, you can kind of see it. It's one of those things. I mean, it's got that lyric hook, you, and you're never going to forget it once you've heard it. It also happens to be a pretty memorable melody. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, King talks about why he thought it was a hit. Well, 
Uh, the reason it was big is because it, the way it was paid for that song with Sweet Love, uh, Close to You, and then, of course, Easy, and uh, Brick House also. So the, the way it was already paid that uh, something big could happen because Easy went up to number three on the pop charts here in the States. So the door was already open so they could be played. And I don't know, personally, I don't think that Three Times Later is a greater song than Easy. I just think it came out after Easy, which made Easy the old song. But they could have been reversed. But it was just that the doors were already open because the airplay had already been out, and both of them were such great songs. I mean, they're the kind of songs that you whistle, that you like to listen to, that you can be in any mood, you can be just finished dancing on disco, and then it can come on and you can still feel good, or you can be sitting in a restaurant and eat and still feel good listening to it. It doesn't matter where you play it. It's just a super, super song. Okay, now let's talk about the song Easy, and yeah. that is a great song that stands up today. But the best part is that guitar riff right near the end. The so, Adam, play that part of the song with the guitar riff from Easy. Oh, man, I love that. And that's just, <laughs> it's such a nice little rock touch to a great ballad. It's, a, it's very unusual that it's in there like that. Well, the song is interesting because it's about a, after a breakup, and instead of being depressed, the singer says that he's easy like Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> and Lionel Richie, who wrote it, described it as, a, as being evocative of small southern towns that die at 11.30 p.m. on a Saturday night. <laughs> And I guess as a native of Tuskegee, he would know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, William King also talks about when they saw a path to the next level career-wise. Uh, I think there were two turning points for the Commodores, really. The first one was when we really decided, when we were like 18 or 19 years old, that we were going to do this. Because we were just out playing gigs. So we went into the process of studying what would make us, super, make us a super group. And... I think the realization of, of what was in front of us was the real turnabout. I think the second thing was the time when we went out with the Jackson 5, which was the first time we had really gotten a chance to see what big business and show in uh, rock and roll was really about. Because they were playing to like an average of 15 to 20,000 people per night, and we were the opening act. And we got a chance to see people come out, we got a chance to see the people's response, we got a chance to see business, the business end of show business in motion and working well, which is a phenomenon in our day and age, uh, because very few rock and roll groups that I know anything about, and I know quite a few business runs well. That's interesting, those two big moments for them, uh, including touring with the Jacksons. And it's interesting yeah. because by then, I think that the Jacksons were more well-seasoned because they were the big act too because the Commodores would open for them. And so Lionel would see a young Michael Jackson, you know, just whipping a crowd into a frenzy from the stage. And of course, they worked very closely together over the years, um, including on the song, We Are the World. Right, mm -hmm. right. All right, there you go. That's William King of the Commodores on Famous Lost Words. And I promise Lionel Richie is coming soon.
That does it for this week's edition of Famous Lost Words. Thank you so much for your feedback. We've had a lot of comments about the recent interviews that we've done with the band. Uh, got a comment from uh, a listener, Monique, who loved the interview with Randy Bachman. Just loved it. And I got to admit, that's one of my favorites as well. We've got lots more to come in coming weeks. Just want to remind you that you can get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This week's show, as always, was produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Tom Jokic. He's Christopher Ward. This is Famous Lost Words. Follow us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod or on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. <laughs>